All right. Good morning, everyone. This is the home stretch of our Isaiah series, turning a uh, third base rounding home, going to the last part that's entitled The War of the Lamb. Uh, before we get started, kind of getting into this last section of the book of Isaiah for the last part of this trilogy, uh, I want to talk about different mediums of communication and how we give different levels of commitment to various mediums of communication. This was something uh, my friend Jay from a, a pastor at Vintage Faith in Santa Cruz pointed out. But what I mean by different levels of commitment for different mediums of communication is picture text messaging, phone calls, and uh, meeting with someone for, for, for coffee. I'm not a coffee fan, so it's got to be like an energy drink or something. But it's like one-on-one coffee, uh, phone calls, and then text messaging. We, kind of even without thinking about it, give different levels of commitment to each one of those mediums. So, for instance, if, if you just are meeting some friends and you want to know when, you, hey, remind me again when uh, we're meeting to go watch Star Wars. Uh, what medium do you choose for that? Now, depending upon your age, your demographic, and your style, but for the most part, all you need to know is a time. What is the preferred medium of communication? Text messaging. Uh, some of you don't do this because you actually want to start up a conversation. Uh, even if you, It's just like you're, ch- you're a chatterbox, like your friends know it. Uh, and so you might try to call. You might, you might try to call just to ask a simple question. What time is it? And the person goes, seven. Because they know that when they see your name pop on the cell phone, there's a different level of commitment needed in this phone call because it's not just you wanting to know what time the movie is. You want to chat. You want to talk. And so most of you have probably been guilty of this. It's wrong to lie at church. It's double bad. But you've had your cell phone ring and you look at it and you go like, oh, this person, that's a 30-minute phone call. <sighs> Not right now. Um, it, but there's some things that the, the, the level of communication, it won't suffice to just talk on the phone or to do the text message thing. You need, actually need to meet with someone and talk it over for an hour or two, right? There's some things that you need to do that. Young people. Um, If you're going to break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you do not do that in a text message. It's it's the wrong medium. It's like, hey, it's been a great five years. I'm moving. And I unfriended you. Uh, I just, it's, I don't want to live in the past later. Uh, it's just, it's not the right medium. So, so you, you kind of get how that works. There's different mediums for different levels of communication. Now, relating this to the Bible, the Bible was written with an expectation that people would be consuming that medium in a certain fashion. The Bible was written by people who thought the people who were going to be reading it would be reading it in three distinct ways that are usually distinct from the modern reader. So first, the Bible was written by people who thought that the Bible was going to be read in community. They thought it was going to be read in in, in a group. Uh, And the reason for that is because for the most part of human history, there's no Gutenberg, there's no printing press. If you're lucky, your community, your synagogue, your church has one copy of that Bible. And so the assumption was, of course you're going to be reading it together. There's, I mean, think about this. Most of us read our Bibles, how? By ourselves in our head. 
most people have read the scriptures in community. The second part of that is they would read it out loud, not in your head. Because it'd be really weird to be reading in community and just have someone reading it in their head. My daughter just likes to... I think she could read because she's brilliant, but I know deep down she can't read. But sometimes she'll pretend she's reading a book, and I go, are you reading, baby? And she goes, yeah, I'm reading in my head. And she'll do it for like 20 minutes. I don't know what she's... What she's... But people, the, the people who wrote the Bible thought you would be experiencing the Bible by hearing it aloud. In community, and then third, in length. And what I mean by that is this... Um, we have tons of things competing for our, our attention, and we have tons of books, things to read, movies to watch, places to go. Um, in a small Jewish community, like your Torah scroll was one of the books, one of the scrolls that the entire community had, and it was your form of education, it was your form of entertainment, it was your form of storytelling, it was everything. So you wouldn't just read that thing like for two minutes and then be done. You would read it in length. A short time would say like be like 10 to 20 minutes, but we know with certainty that people in the ancient world would read these sacred texts for a couple hours, which means the Bible was written by people who assumed the intended audience would be reading it out loud in community and at length. Again, contrast that with us. How do we consume the Bible? Text message, phone calls, or coffee dinner? Primarily in text message chunks. I mean, when we look at like Christian publishing in the world, and especially in America, not in the world, but in the American context, uh, majority of Christians will read like a daily devotional in the morning, and that daily devotional is usually composed of a small portion of scripture, then with like five paragraphs of, of inspiration for your day. Or you have a, a favorite Bible verse that you've memorized, and maybe you start off your day by saying it. Now again, don't get me wrong, text messaging is not wrong. It's a valid form of communication, and reading your Bible in small bite-sized chunks isn't wrong in and of itself, but if that is the only way you're reading the scripture, it's the only way, you're going to fail to consume that in the ways that the authors intended you to read, and thus you're going to miss out on a lot of the portions of scripture. So, for example, I can't tell you how many people, and maybe you fall into this category, through the book of Isaiah, we've been talking a lot about the exile this period where God's people are in Babylon as, as slaves and needing this return to exile and how this like return to exile was critical to understanding Jesus' mission in the first century context. I can't tell you how many Christians have come up to me and been like, I've been a Christian for decades. I've never heard that. I've, I've, ne I, I've never known how important this Babylonian exile was at the end of the Old Testament. And there's reason for that, because no one reads the, in the books of the Old Testament. They're, they're, they're hard. Like, watch, let me do a test. Let me, let me do a what's your favorite? What's your favorite verse from Nahum? <laughs> Anybody? I know there's somebody. You could probably do it. I know you got a favorite verse from Nahum. You could probably, Obadiah. Anybody? This is an easy one. Someone should have Habakkuk, because you know why you know Habakkuk, somebody? because it's quoted in the New Testament. You got a Habakkuk one? What is it? Is it the faith? Oh, the celebration one? It's like, they'll run like deers or something? Is it that one? I don't know. I'm probably making stuff up. <laughs> they'll run like deers and soar on the wings of eagles. 
They will have eagle powers. That's Isaiah, actually. Um, okay, so you, you, so you get the point. There's nothing wrong with consuming the Bible in small portions, but if it's the only way you're doing it, 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 can, leave, it can leave you out on some of the inside knowledge. So you have to picture these people reading these stories and then retelling them again and again and again around the campfire at night. Think of the kids asking mom and dad, tell the story of David and Goliath again. And as they're around the campfire, it's not like, well, you know the story, you know, David got some stones, he kills Goliath, great, end of thing. They, they, get, they, they retell the whole thing and the context and the prophecies surrounding David and how God is going to bring another king like David. So as we've gone through the book of Isaiah, what we've tried to do here is to kind of not only work through little tidbits of Isaiah, but also take a step back and look at the big picture, the big story of what the Bible is telling. Oh, before I move on, a quick, uh, just a show of hands, because I do want to start doing things where, as a church, we're reading the Bible in community and at length, and I know, like, there's some super Christians who will come to this, but most of you have to be convinced. But like, I want us to do something in the new year where we just have like once a month scripture reading for like an hour and a half. And there's, 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 there's no sermon, there's, there's no, nothing else, but we're just going to read the gospel of Luke out loud together. So there's some of you who will come to that. Yeah, you, the righteous among the brethren. Okay. <laughs> but, but what if we did something where... It's like an hour and a half, but then also, you, the, the, yeah, well, we're going to charge you to come in. We're, we say, you have to bring a dish that's been in your family for more than a decade. And so everyone brings like their own special, like cool, unique recipe. It don't even have to be a good recipe. It could be gross. You'd be like, this is my grandma's stuffing and it's horrible, uh, but it's been in the family for 10 years. And, and let's say you don't have any recipes, you don't cook. You can cheat and go to our brand new luxurious Taco Bell and just bring some burritos. But the, the point is, around food and the storytelling of our lives, we encounter the scripture at length in community. So, just be honest. If we did something like that, how many of you would go? Be honest. Okay, that's enough for me. Okay, that's enough. We at least should have 75 there. Uh, I'll, be get, I'll be looking. Okay. So, again, we, we want to step back and look at the big picture of Isaiah. And in doing that, um, I, I, as we enter into this last part of the series, I want to, to look at the promises of God that are taking place in Scripture and the book of Isaiah and show how they're all leading us up to Jesus. So, page three of the Bible, God makes a promise to destroy the bad guy in the story. If you're sitting around a campfire telling the story to the kids, do you think this part may be important to the development of the story? It's like massive. This is all like little kids would care about. When is God going to come defeat the bad guys? So God makes a promise in Genesis 3. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, this is a very poetic way of saying God is going to defeat this serpent of old, the bad guy from the beginning. So if you were reading these stories again and again and again, one of the controlling plot devices in your brain all the time is, when is God destroying the serpent? When is he going to take that guy out? I saw a cool image the other day that, I, that illustrates this in a unique way. I've never seen this. 
Um, it's a picture of Eve and Mary, and it's like Eve in mourning, finally putting her hand on Mary's belly where, where Jesus is, and there's this prophetic foreshadow that that which is in her belly is going to come kind of defeat the serpent of old. But that image is stuck in your brain. Page three of the Bible, God is going to defeat evil. As the Bible develops, God also makes other promises, and they're all connected to each other. And there's two major promises that control the plot in the Bible. And they're promises made to a guy named Abraham and a promise made to a guy named David. Theologically, they're called the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. The Abrahamic covenant succinctly stated in Genesis 12 is, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." If you've been here for the 12 weeks, the original promise to defeat the serpent said that a seed, an offspring, a descendant, the Hebrew word Zerah, a Zerah seed descendant offspring is going to destroy the serpent. Genesis 12 says there's going to be an offspring, a Zerah, a seed, a descendant, who is going to somehow bless all the families of the world. Currently, there is a curse on the world because of this thing called sin, but God is raising up a family, a people, Abraham's descendants, ethnic Israel, to come and bless the families of the earth. It's a promise that God makes. It's a controlling plot device. The promise that God makes to David hundreds of years later is this. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers... In other words, David, when you die, I will raise up for you offspring after you, Zerah, descendant. The offspring after you will be one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, if you're a Christian, you immediately go, who is that? Jesus. Wait. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. If you've been a Christian a long time, who is the son of David who builds the house of God? Solomon. So you want to jump to Jesus, but then verse 12, it sure sounds like he's talking about Solomon. But then as you keep reading, you're going like, I don't know if this is actually Solomon. Verse 13, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So it's very mysterious how all of this works. And if, it's, if you're kind of getting lost, just know this. The Bible begins with a promise of an offspring, a descendant, Azera, to take out the bad guy in the story. Later, God makes two promises that God is going to do this through Abraham's people, ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and then he's going to raise up a king whose throne will last forever from the line of Abraham, and his kingdom will be established without end. As the Bible goes through in the Old Testament, if you're reading it at length, out loud, you're going to hear these promises brought up again and again and again. How many times in the Old Testament do God's people say, remember your promises, God, that you made to Abraham. Do not forget David, your servant. 
It's because even though they're messed up, they go, God, but you made some promises. Are you going to fulfill them? As the Old Testament develops, prophets start describing this future descendant, this future offspring, this future Zerah. The very difficult thing is that as they develop this figure, this kind of coming king, this coming descendant, the picture they paint is incongruent. There's tension in the picture. It, it, it doesn't quite make one unified, cohesive drawing. So sometimes this coming servant, this coming offspring, the one who's going to defeat the serpent, is depicted as like a mighty warrior who's going to, to slay the bad guys. Sometimes he's depicted as a king who will bring peace in the land. And sometimes, particularly in the book of Isaiah, he's predicted as someone who is going to serve and suffer. And not just suffer a little bit, suffer immensely. So as Isaiah develops in the past eight weeks as we've been through this book, what's beginning to emerge is an image of a coming offspring who is going to be a powerful and mighty suffering servant king. Do you see how there's tension in that? When you think of powerful and mighty, you don't think of someone suffering. That, that doesn't add up. This is all the tension that is leading up to the life of Jesus. So when you open the New Testament and begin one of the Gospels, and the Gospels are the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of these promises, all of these pictures, all of these thoughts are in the minds of the first century Jewish community. When is the offspring going to come? When is the serpent slayer coming? What is he going to be like? We're going to look into the Gospel of Luke today, where Isaiah, uh, Luke, tells us that Jesus begins his ministry by quoting from the book of Isaiah. So we're in Luke chapter 4. Important to note that Luke chapter 1 and 2 are basically kind of talking about the Christmas story. Luke chapter 3 has a genealogy and other stuff. But Luke 4 is where Jesus officially begins his ministry. He's just been baptized, the Spirit has anointed him, and now he's going to go begin preaching about the coming kingdom. And the first thing that Luke tells us that Jesus does is this. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So, a br brief context. Um, Jesus, it was his custom to go to synagogue, and in the synagogue uh, system, they read the Bible in a certain way. Guess which way? Aloud, in community, and at length. They had a three-year cycle where you would go through the entirety of the Old Testament, and everyone in the synagogue would take turns reading the text. And so, this is Jesus' turn to read the text for the day. And he's going to pick up the scroll of Isaiah. Now picture, small town, Nazareth, small synagogue. Uh, this is Jesus' hometown. Everyone knows who he is. They've grown up with him. They've seen the way he plays. And he's not baseball. I don't know what they were playing back, back then. But whatever it was, it was like, he's not that good. Like, come on, yeah. my son's better than 
Joseph's son. We don't even know if he's Joseph's son, you know. There's all this kind of rumor and talk about the origin of Jesus. So picture Jesus in his hometown. It's his turn to read scripture. He opens up to Isaiah chapter 31, and he begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All stuff from Isaiah that we've talked about. There's someone coming. He's bringing good news. He's going to set the captives free, give sight to the blind. Everyone's on board at this point. And then Luke tells us Jesus does this. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, which is sort of weird just to read about one and a half verses. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Jesus has set up a situation where where you can't sit on the fence. He just said, Isaiah 61, the hope of Israel is being fulfilled now, today. And at first, people's reactions are like, oh my gosh, this is is incredible. I mean, everything, they've been waiting for this for so long. You ever waited for something for so, like, just, the best example of this and some of you are going to have to go back 10 years, some of you are going to have to go back 20 years, some of you have to go 60, 70, 80 years. But you need to go back to your earliest memories of Christmas as a kid. Now, unless you grew up in a really bad, really rough household, even, even rough households, usually kids have ki- houses have kids looking forward to Christmas. You remember when you were like six, seven, or eight, and like Christmas was two weeks away? It was like the biggest thing there was. You're waiting like for Christmas. The same thing applies to your birthday too, but like two weeks before, you're a seven-year-old and you're asking mom, how many more days till Christmas? 14. Oh my gosh. I've been in exile for 70 years. It's so bad. And it's like, how many days till Christmas? Three more days. Three more days. Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm Jonah and the whale. This is death. It's death. And when Christmas finally comes, in your mind, you've convinced yourself that like once that comes and you get new presents, your life will now be complete. I mean, really, as a kid, there's, think about that times 50. Israel has been suffering for hundreds of years, and now Jesus is saying, your great hope is being fulfilled among your very eyes. This day, everything is going to be complete and made whole and perfect. This is what we've been waiting for. But Jesus is aware of something. And he's going to do something that's, that's scandalous. It's going to cause controversy. Jesus is aware of the people's expectations. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What, have we, heard you, what we heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. In other words, at first people are like, It's going down. It's Christmas. And then they're like, wait a second. You're Jesus. We've known you since you were a baby. 
you've been a mama's boy since day one. We don't even know if Joseph is your real father. Yeah, we, 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 if you are whom you say you are, do the miracles you did in Capernaum here. We've heard rumors that you've been doing stuff here and there. We've heard some things. And Jesus says, I know what you want. You're going to tell the physician to heal yourself. In other words, oh, you're a miracle worker. Do a miracle here. But a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Then Jesus begins to tell two stories from the Old Testament. And they're not two random stories. He's telling them with a specific purpose. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now just stop before we go. This is like kind of random. Like scripture does random things. And again, we're kind of so used to just reading our Bible quick or in short pieces. Like there's this controversy and Jesus knows it. And then he goes, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day. It's like, what? There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of a different prophet, Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus tells two stories about two different types of people who are healed. What's important to note is that one is from Sidon, which is a northern Phoenician city, and the other one is Syrian. They're not Jewish people. And Jesus says, Jesus could have healed, God could have healed Jewish people in those times of, of, of famine and trial and tribulation, but he chose a widow from Phoenicia. And you're going like, well, what, is, what is he trying to get at here? I left something out earlier on purpose. When Jesus reads Isaiah 61 to the people in the synagogue, he stops short of finishing verse 2. So I want to read to you not what Jesus read in the synagogue that day, but what is actually recorded in the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61. Because he does something to it. He changes it. This is what Isaiah 61 actually says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Sounds pretty close right now, right? Pretty, pretty darn close. Same thing. Okay. The third line from the bottom. And the opening of prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. When Jesus reads Isaiah 61, he doesn't say, and the day of vengeance for our God. Now, you better believe the people in that synagogue, most of them, if not all of them, know Isaiah 61. This is one of their great hopes. So when Jesus reads, he's reading it, and then he's like, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and everyone's about to like, at least if you're like me, and the day of vengeance when God kills the Romans and he left over Babylonians that might be hiding, he's going to take them out too. The day of vengeance where God defeats Israel's enemies. And Jesus just stops right there. He doesn't read that part. Now, knowing that, let's read the two stories again 
and see if we can piece together what Jesus might be trying to communicate. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all of the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Remember the the picture of the coming servant and offspring. There's tension in it. There is the mighty warrior king, but there's also the suffering servant. People had an expectation. They had an image in their mind. And what they were picturing was the vengeance of God to come. But you have to understand that the way God is going to do this vengeance thing, the way God is going to defeat his enemies, is not like what anyone was thinking. It's the greatest plot twist in human history. And oftentimes we look bad. We look like what like down at at people who would be like, how could they not see all these Old Testament prophecies in the life of Jesus? Well, if you're like me, I'm also waiting for this guy to do some miracles, but also to kill the Romans who crucified my brother last Sunday. And Jesus basically says, this whole vengeance, this this justice thing isn't going to look like the way you thought. And and another thing, remember some of the stories in the Old Testament God has not only had a heart just for Israel, he's had a heart for the world. Now, why is that important to the promises of God? What was the promise made to Abraham? God is going to bless Abraham so that Israel can be a blessing to the world. In other words, God just doesn't want to bless you so you can be blessed. He blesses you, he blesses Israel, so that that blessing can then pour out for all of humanity. But that's the part that people in the first century really weren't waiting for. Now, how do I know that Jesus is basically saying this? How do we know for certain that Jesus is doing this like, you guys got it all wrong, Messiah doesn't look like anything you thought he would? How do we know that? The next verse. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You got to picture this. This is a small Jewish town. They know Jesus. This isn't like chucking an, a stranger who's babbling nonsense over a cliff. This is your friend. This is someone you grew up with. And what he says is so inflammatory that the people get in this frenzy of wrath and they take him out to kill him. Now, specifically, they're going to stone him. It says throw him off a cliff, but there's a document called the Talmud. It's composed a couple hundred years, a Jewish document after the life of Jesus. Uh, Even though it's composed a couple hundred years after, the material is, is from earlier times. And there was two ways to stone people. There was kind of like the one you picture in your head where you just get a bunch of rocks and throw them at somebody. But the actual more common way in the first century world for the Jewish community was to to throw someone over a cliff, and if they didn't die, then you would throw remaining boulders on them to to take them out. So that's what they're going to do to Jesus. They're going to throw him over, they're going to stone him for blasphemy. And then the Bible just says somehow Jesus passes through their midst. Now, I don't know and we don't know if that was because he's like super sneaky 
He's the son of God, and he needed to sneak away. Uh, maybe God did a miracle. He, like, blinded the people's eyes. Or maybe, I mean, think about it. If this is Jesus in his hometown, maybe they're in a frenzy, and they want to kill Jesus, but as they're about to do it, they realize, what are we thinking? This is Jesus who we've known forever. We don't know the details. Luke wants to leave it mysterious on purpose. Passing through their mist, he went away. This is how Luke begins telling the ministry of Jesus. So you have to understand, this story is put at the start of Jesus' ministry in Luke for a reason. It's not just a random story of all the random stories of the life of Jesus. This story is programmatic. It sets the tone for Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke. There is going to be a repeated pattern taking place again and again and again. Jesus will first be accepted, and then when people find out what he really wants to do, they will reject him. The very people who will at first say, crown him king, will be the very people who yell, crucify the next. The shadow of rejection looms over Jesus throughout the gospel of Luke. This is a rejected servant, a man of sorrows, a man who is acquainted with grief, and that it becomes programmatic for the entirety of the gospel of Luke. And I think Luke leaves the, it's kind of, mis- the, I think the gospel writers uh, do this on purpose when they talk out like, and then Jesus passed through their mist, and you're going like, well, how did that happen? I think it's, again, it's programmatic. It's sort of saying like, Jesus is going to be the one who escapes death, and when he does die, he, he will do it willingly. It won't be taken from him. He will give his life. Now, all of this is extremely important because Jesus has come to fulfill all the promises of God and, and wage this war, this final climactic battle against Satan's sin and death. But everyone was expecting him to do so in a certain fashion. Um, and sometimes as Christians we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, like, again, we want, we want Jesus to establish peace on earth, and, and yeah, we do, but if you're honest with yourself, sometimes you just, like, you look at the world, and you look at what people are doing, and you're just like, sometimes, man, I just want some of that Old Testament, like, vengeance stuff happening on people. And what God is saying is that there is a time for justice, there is a time for vengeance, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, But the way Jesus is going to fight this battle is going to be fundamentally different than the expectations of the people. Because the essential plot is this. How do you bless the world when the world has become corrupt and the means of blessing Israel is corrupt as well? God said through Israel, ethnic Israel, I'm going to bless the entire world. But now, Israel itself is a part of the world's corruption. Remember a couple weeks ago, the religious establishment was corrupt? They were taking advantage of the poor. There's money changes. Jesus comes into the table, uh, to the temple. He's flipping over tables. The religious establishment is corrupt. But on top of that, even at the street level, the people in Jesus' own hometown are corrupt. They have a picture of God that they want. And when God turns out to be somebody different, they say, kill him. 
And again, if you're incredibly brave and honest with yourself, most of us have had that same experience. When God turns out to be somebody or something different than you expected, you say, kill him. But it's good news that God isn't like the God we want. It's a different type of God. And so in Jesus, we see God finally coming with decisive action through the purse of the Son to destroy Satan's sin and death. But he's going to do it in a way that fulfills all of his promises. God comes as a Jewish man, a descendant of David, a descendant of Abraham. This is the offspring, the Zerah, the shoot, from Jesse, from David's line, from Abraham's line. This is the seed of the woman. But he's going to fight evil in a way that the other kings had, had not. See, most of us, uh, the way the world works and the way Israel operated is when there's evil in the land, you use physical weapons and physical might and you use the same weapons that the bad guys use. And whoever has the more powerful weapons and more men, they win the battle. Jesus is going to fight the greatest battle in cosmic history and he's never even going to lift a sword. You realize how powerful that is. The greatest battle that has ever been fought, the victor did it without raising his hands, without using a sword, without using a gun, without dropping bombs. Paul the Apostle would reflect on this, one of the leaders in the early church, and he would say, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You see how all the weapons are transformed. There's faith now and salvation and peace and the gospel. And this is how God is fighting his war. And so if, if you want to know how to fight and engage in this battle, you look to our commander. How did he do it? You look to the life and teachings of Jesus. What did Jesus teach us to do? How did Jesus live? That's what we're supposed to do. It's, it's like the simplest thing in the world, but it's the most difficult thing. Like, how do we engage in, this, in, in, in the war that, that God is fighting type of thing? And it's like, Jesus tells us, you got to learn to turn the other cheek and humble yourself and pray for your enemies and bless those who curse you, care for those in need, serve the least of them, be willing to lay down your life. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but on the other side, it's like the hardest thing in the world to do because no one wants to do this. Like, I, I, I don't. Like, step one, humble yourself and become a servant. No thanks. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Not down. How about be awesome? I like that. Be super cool and liked by everybody. No, humble yourself and become a servant. For your enemies, pray for them. When they curse you, bless them. That is a difficult thing to do. 
That sounds like a miserable life, by the way. But the secret that Jesus tells us is when the first become last and the last become first and you're willing to lose your life to gain it, true joy and fulfillment is found in this. The most joyful people on the face of the earth are these types of people. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the the people who live like this are the blessed ones. And the, the, the kind of double negative about this is, one, is it, it at first appears like it's not life-fulfilling, which it is. But the second part of it is if you're kind of like, if you're a pessimist or a cynic like me, you're just going like, that's not going to change the world. That doesn't change the world. Like loving your enemies, praying for those who don't like you, being a servant, that doesn't change the world. Come on. It may like, you might win over one or two people and they might join your cause, but this doesn't change the world. What's going to take place next week in this series is that Jesus will climactically, definitively, decisively demonstrate that this is how you change the world. Because Jesus will go to the cross and do all of this. That's what the gospel writers want you to see. They want you to see Jesus doing everything he taught. When people punch you, when they slap you, turn the other cheek. When they spit upon you, you bless them. When they nail you to a cross, you forgive them. And Jesus does all of these things. And here's the the great news. Whether anybody likes it or not, whether you believe in Jesus or you don't, that man's sacrificial death has changed more hearts and minds than any other figure in human history. You want to know how to change the world? You live like Jesus. You fight the battle differently. So my closing challenge is this, because we're going to continue this next week, is, again, what weapons are you using? Are you using the weapons that Jesus chose to adopt? Um, Some of you, if you're honest with yourself, when you're thinking about doing God's will, expanding God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, when you think about evangelism, when you think about getting the good news of Jesus Christ out, you might honestly be saying, I'm not, using it. I'm not using those weapons because I'm not using any weapons. I just came to church on Sunday. I just come to church on Sundays. Go to Bible study here and there. My challenge for you is this. You got to get in the fight. If you are a Christian, your job is to spread the good news of, of the Prince of Peace, to bring about his goodwill on earth as it is in heaven. And so you got to get in the game. The second group of people might be people who like, you're in the game, but man... You, do not, you, just, you just don't like using the weapons that Jesus chose to use. And I get that. I get that. Like when I watch stuff, I see stuff, I read stuff, I'm just like, oh, someone should knock that dude out type of thing. And, and the hope is that you know as a Christian, God will do, do right when it's all said and done. Justice will come. But, but on this side of eternity, the weapons you use are the weapons Jesus used. Do people in your workplace see you as a humble servant who loves others more than he loves themselves? And if not, maybe in this time as we worship, you reflect on that and ask God for forgiveness. Help me to, to fight the good fight in the way you want me to. And then maybe you're in a third category where you're like, you know, I'm trying, and I'm do, try, doing my best to emulate Jesus and live like him. That's great. Just in this time of worship, uh, pray that 
that God would continue to give you more responsibility and more opportunity to get the good news of Jesus Christ out. So reflect on where you're at and prepare yourself as we go into next Sunday where Jesus finally comes uh, to the cross and all the promises of God find their final and complete yes. Let me pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. They are in, they are beautiful. They are engaging. The Bible is a constant journey and adventure. Um, and I pray that this church would fall more and more in love with reading the Bible and reading the text and letting that transform our lives. Thank you that you are the God who you say you are and you are not the God that humanity wanted. And even though we nailed you to a cross, you forgave us and gave us a path back into relationship to you. We love you. We give you thanks on this day. In Jesus' name, amen.